getting from point A to point B. That's the focus when we think about modes of transportation. How are we going to get there? How long will it take? How much will it cost? But there is a question that burns hotter today than any other time. How much carbon is being emitted in our travels? Welcome to our second episode of The Edge of Energy, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Planes, trains, automobiles, and boats account for greenhouse gas emissions in Toronto. To date, fossil fuels have been popular because they were highly portable, storable, and extremely energy dense. It was hard to see beyond that, until now. Alternative technologies, renewable energies, and innovations around fuel efficiency are helping to transition more places to non-emitting sources of power. Government commitments like a $15 billion budget to expand and electrify public transit, the launch of zero-emission cars and trucks, plus battery innovations have made the impossible tangible. Ryan Jensen is the inventor, designer, and strategist of the 1,000-kilometer-per-hour vessel called the Transpod. Nice to talk with you. Ryan, you're a scientist, engineer, researcher, and composer in your spare time. You're someone who's been innovating in multiple disciplines, but your latest patent is a real game-changer. A thousand kilometers per hour? Is that even possible? Like, can you tell our listeners about Transpod, what it is, and how it could help serve the journey towards a transition to a clean energy future for transportation in Canada? This is a very global project with some of the latest uh, research coming out of Canada and overseas. But what it is, is we're designing a vehicle to carry passengers between cities at over 1,000 kilometers per hour. This is a very advanced vehicle and transportation system. It's a bit of a mix between a jet and a train, but even faster than a jet and about three times as fast as the fastest high-speed train, high-speed rail. And so we're designing this for application around the world, but it's a multi-year development project, just like an aircraft development program. So we're developing this. It's kind of a a Canadian invention, and it's related to the idea of uh, tube transportation. So the idea of vehicles in a protected guideway, this concept was was actually first conceptualized about 100 years ago by two people. One is a a Russian inventor, Boris Weinberg, and, uh, and also... Robert Goddard, one of the pioneers of of rocket design. And so this idea of high-speed tube transportation was kind of really developed as a concept over the last decades since then. Then there were some projects. There was a a project in the U.S. There was kind of a concept from Switzerland. Then a different version was Hyperloop. But now we have Transpod, which is the next generation of that, to solve the technical hurdles and challenges that those previous systems had. And so it's definitely a very global project with all of the industrial and and university partners that we have. But uh, really, in simple terms, it's really to to be able to move people uh, and cargo. So but basically to create a convenient passenger transportation system between uh, major cities and for, uh, for freight. In our first episode, we talked about some of Canada's advantages in clean energy. The biggest being we have such a high, probably the highest in the world, percentage of our energy coming from non-emitting sources. But we also have disadvantages. One of them is our lack of battery manufacturing companies. Where is North America in terms of lithium companies 
and hydrogen fuel cells. Are we on the right track? Yeah, we do have to invest in new technologies in energy storage. So that's partly new types of batteries and production. Uh, and also smarter ways that we can do storage and even helping the regional grids in different ways, that's partly capacity and storage. One of the things that we're doing with the Transpod line is actually augmenting the regional power grid capacity along a Transpod line, so redistributing power because a Transpod line does have to be grid connected anyways, and so it actually can serve that function to relieve a little bit of the pressure on provincial uh, power grids. Which is, which is a really nice side benefit, but also the Transpod line does have a grid stabilization part. So that's actually really sought after by the power grids in quite a few countries to be able to take the surplus power from wind turbines or solar power through the day and to actually even that out through the day because you're not really generating solar power at night and the wind can go up and down. That's been a big roadblock to really use wind power and solar power very effectively around the world, or in, including in Canada, grid uh, storage is a key part of that. And so that's what we're including as part of a transpod line. But of course, with other types of grid storage, you know, that's very good. And part of the goal with a, a transpod vehicle is actually to be not relying on very large batteries inside a transpod vehicle. So that's, that's another reason why the Transpod line is, you know, not to be confused with Hyperloop and, and some of these other designs. It's, it's a main in Canada technology where we have some very advanced physics research and industrialization to be able to actually do that power supply from the grid onto the vehicle without relying on batteries. It's partly for safety concerns, but also you can even look at kind of the ethical battery sourcing issues too, ethical lithium because, of course, these minerals have to come from mines around the world. And some of those cases, you really have to look at the ethics of sourcing them. So I think uh, with, uh, with all of our vehicles, we really have to focus on research of, of advanced batteries to be able to get the cost down, the uh, energy density up, but also ways of distributing and augmenting power in grids uh, that's done with other types of infrastructure. So that's definitely what we're working on with Transpod. Zero emission vehicles are either battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, or hydrogen fuel cell. One of the issues is extreme weather. And we live in Canada. Our winters can be extreme. So how much of a challenge is weather when we're looking at zero emission vehicles? Yeah, that's really true. And I'm a strong believer in really choosing the right technology for the right applications. Definitely, we need a mix of the right kind of trains, for regional connections, electric buses for feeders into the trains, and then of course feeding into transport lines too. So, so really the whole point is to not favor only one technology, but really to have a, an intelligent mix of those technologies and definitely, yes, designing for the environment, designing for the weather conditions, soil conditions, especially when you're dealing with a, a rail line or a transport line, uh, it has to be well adapted to that scenario. So definitely with a transport line, the key part is, is customizing it for that particular province in geological conditions, weather conditions, precipitation, even seismic suppression for earthquakes. So that's all pretty standard. And then with electric buses, then yes, definitely there are different manufacturers uh, worldwide. And it's really important to do trial runs and tests 
uh, with small numbers of these vehicles. Uh, and, then, and that's what a lot of transit agencies are doing in Canada. When we're thinking about transportation planning, there's different issues we face. In a city like Toronto, where I live, distances are short when we're planning transportation systems, but there tends to be a lot of infrastructure that's already there that we've got to work around that makes it complex to plan. And then we have rural communities where the journeys are longer, but there is a lot of open space. Yet at the same time, there's things that we have to think about in planning, whether that's landmarks, indigenous lands, or industrial areas. What does it take to deliver all of these modes of transportation while not disturbing these different environments and the inhabitants? Yes, it really has to consider the landscape and consider the community and all different uh, communities that are along the line. Any line that you're going to build or any, any network you're going to build, that's really a mix of consultation, but also smart planning. On one level, with the lines that we're designing, it really comes partly from computer analysis, so pretty advanced algorithms to optimize the actual routes, to be able to intelligently find the most optimum shape of the route through the landscape to have the least possible impact. And you really can put into those algorithms, well, okay, we have to consider, you can actually make those considerations of, okay, well, what can reduce the community impact? What can have the lightest touch on the landscape? And the same in urban environments too. It's, it's really a matter of having something practical. That's where you can't just come in with an overly optimistic line or scheme without really seeing how you can intelligently integrate that with the network. So an, a really holistic network approach. Giving us a glimpse into the relationship between energy efficiency and environmental sustainability in transportation systems is Professor Eric Miller. There's very different contexts. In urban areas, and even there, I think we can divide between sort of the dense downtown core areas and the lower density suburban areas. In, let's say, the, the Toronto region, the solutions are really transit-oriented, active transportation-oriented, trying to create both a transportation system and evolution of the urban form in a way that more people can be using transit and more people can be walking, biking, skateboarding, I suppose, whatever, to fulfill their daily needs. But even within that urban area, transit and active transportation, as much as we love them, are not going to address all our transportation needs. There's many trips that are just simply too long to walk or even bike. Transit can never provide really attractive door-to-door -door service for everybody. So we're always going to need, I think, a private vehicle or more auto automobile-based transportation, uh, you know, and we love to hate the automobile, but it's, it's, it's an essential part of our cities. We built our cities that way. So I think uh, if we're looking at the sustainability of, of the auto portion of that system after we've maximized transit and auto and, uh, I mean, active transportation, we really have to be looking at decarbonizing, first of all, decarbonizing the, the, transport, the auto system. If we switch quickly to the more rural, small town situation, there, we don't have the same sorts of congestion problems with the road system. We also don't have the same opportunities, particularly for conventional transit in those systems when, as places. We, we tend to run small bus systems. They're not very attractive They're, um, uh, in many respects. I think in many small towns and small cities, uh, I think there's great potential actually for, for better active transportation, bicycling, walking, 
and thinking about how to promote that. But I think one of the big distinctions is, is transit just simply isn't going to solve as much of the problem. So there again, we're looking at a future that still involves the use of, of cars and trucks uh, to move people and goods. So again, I think electrification or going to zero emission vehicles is, is a critical part of that part of that solution. Of all the different multimodal transportation options out there, it seems that freight and emissions from freight are our biggest challenge in reducing greenhouse gases. You know, in the past year, all of us have been, you know, ordering stuff through Amazon and other delivery services. It's many times been the only way we can receive goods. And so solutions had to be amplified and quickly to emissions from freight. What are some of the innovations that you've seen speed up this process? And will they be effective enough to contribute to us reaching our net zero efforts? I don't know about your neighborhood, but my neighborhood, I go for a walk every evening and I'm dodging the white vans everywhere, delivering the pizzas or the, you know, the, the latest and greatest from Amazon or whatever. And there's an awful lot of those doing a lot of things, the, the plumbers, everything. So I think that's going to be a fairly rapid transition. Pickup trucks are also the thing coming out, right? And the nice thing about trucks, I mean, we don't think about them. We think about them being heavy and carrying things. And so, you know, they have to have power, but they are big and heavy. And so the issues of battery weight and even just the size of the batteries isn't nearly as big as trying to cram this stuff into into a lightweight passenger van. So this is, I think, one of the reasons that the, the you know, all the big... Uh, car manufacturers have been have been looking at pickups and vans is it's actually an easier technological problem. Also, particularly the vans, they're all coming out of a depot at the end of the day, you know, the delivery company X, you know, they're all there, they can charge overnight, they can go out. So the charging problem isn't nearly as big. I mean, for if you're a farmer out in a rural area, well, even there, as long as you can charge at night, the pickups outside the house or the barn, uh, that's probably probably okay. Whereas it's a bit more of a challenge, I think, is is the big heavy rigs, the big long distance trucks. And even there, the same argument: you can put the batteries on, and they can have a range. So they, you know, so there are the companies are starting to come out with the big the big trucks as well. But there, it is the recharging problem again. You're going from I don't know, you pick up oranges in Florida, and you're coming up to Toronto, you're going to have to charge along the way. So so again, we come back to the same old problem. It's the charging network that's going to be the barrier for heavy-duty trucks, long-distance long distance trucks. But you know, the vast majority of truck trips of all sizes are under 250 kilometers or something like that. I just, you know, I Googled that statistic, so take it for what, it, for what it's worth. You know, so there's a whole lot of short distance travel going on, which should fit well with electrification. So, yeah, I, I don't think freight is that much more of a problem. And, you know, and there, there it's pure economic. If it's cheaper to do, companies will do it. It's going to take some time. Eric Miller, thank you so much for that. I love that um, taking us from grand level of transportation systems and infrastructure down to that individual piece of, of how we all think about the decisions we make every day about how we move around our cities, towns, and rural areas. Ryan Jensen is the inventor of the TransPod system. His strategy was to create a new generation of tube transportation systems, or hyperloops, using new technologies to create a safe, high-speed transportation network. He has created several world firsts, including the Lance Flux and Aircraft PLC technology, 
leading to advances in aerospace propulsion, physics, and new innovations for cities. Professor Eric J. Miller has been a faculty member in the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering at the University of Toronto since 1983. He's currently director of U of T's Transportation Research Institute. He is also research director of the university's data management group, responsible for the largest travel survey data collection program in Canada. Canada Research Chair in Transportation and Air Quality and the head of the Transportation Air Quality Research Group, Marianne Hatsopoulo, has been measuring emissions and has some insight on the efficacy of EVs and some suggestions regarding challenges that we might not have thought of. Marianne, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Marianne, I have a question for you. You know, we talk all the time about emission levels, but tell our listeners, how do you actually measure traffic emissions? And, and what do you need to look at to determine what's needed when we're thinking about setting targets and lowering emissions in our cities? So there's different ways in which we measure traffic emissions, and they're very important because it's important to mention that a lot of municipalities, a lot of provinces have to generate emission inventories, right? Cities like the city of Toronto has to report an emission inventory for transportation. So there are certainly various approaches in which we do that. In terms of measuring, to actually measure the emissions that are coming out of the exhaust of the vehicle, Usually it's chassis dynamometer testing. So a lot of the times manufacturers, before they sell a vehicle, they have to demonstrate that the vehicle meets emission standards. So they put a vehicle on what you call, you know, it's like a treadmill, right? And they're measuring the amount of emissions generated under a certain drive cycle. So they're mimicking acceleration, deceleration, some sort of drive cycle that represents urban driving and measuring the amount of emissions. Those you can't do on millions and millions of vehicles, but those generally form the basis for emission databases, which then we can pull from, look at the number of cars on the road, and start generating emission inventories. Very recently, we started using also what we call portable emissions monitoring systems, PEMS. So it's a device, my, my group has one, it's a device that we install in the vehicle. We take a sample of the exhaust, and we drive the vehicle. And as we're driving the vehicle, we start measuring the emissions that are generated. What we found, and we're not the first to do so, and a lot of scientists have been mentioning that, is that the emissions in real world conditions are much higher than what is generally reported on chassis dynamometer testing out of the manufacturing plan, right? Because there's a lot more aggressive driving that goes on in real world conditions that is not embedded in those standard drive cycles. So to actually measure emissions, you really need to measure the quality of the exhaust. There's a lot of other remote sensing technology. So you can measure air pollution, you measure air quality, and then you start inferring what the emissions of cars, what they look like. But most of the time, when you generate these large urban scale emission inventories, you're using something called emission factors. So a database that tells you this kind of car emits that much per kilometer, and you have to link that with the number of cars on the road to kind of get that amount, that total amount. The City of Toronto, the Environment and Energy Division, now using this method to sort of start reporting on their emission inventory. There's a lot of investment going towards electric vehicles. And many people see them as the solution to so much of our emissions issues in transportation. What's your take on this? Are they the answer? 
Do you see any challenges or perhaps improvements needed to this new technology to make them be real game changers? They are not the solution, but they are a very big part of the solution. It's very important to acknowledge, in fact, that there is no way we can achieve deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions without some form of electrification in our transportation sector. It has got to happen to drive greenhouse gas emissions low. And electric vehicles do also have important impacts on air quality because you're shifting emissions off the road onto power plants. And if you live in an area that produces clean energy, I live in Ontario, right, with a very clean energy grid, electricity production has a very small carbon footprint and low emissions of air pollutants, then the benefits are really high. But the benefits are very context dependent. If you live in in an area that uses coal to produce electricity, then you probably won't see any benefits at all. So the benefits are really tied with electricity production. They are an important part of deepening reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. The reason why they're not the only solution, because, well, millions of electric vehicles on Highway 401 is not, (laughs) it's still causing congestion, right? And congestion is associated with a lot of impacts on our economy, on on health, etc. The one issue with EVs is cost. Imagine I'm someone who's in the market for a used vehicle, and I've only got $5,000 to spend. Financially, I can't even get close to the EV space. What incentives, services, or resources are available for me as someone who wants to be a change on the roadways but needs to be, you know, buying a used vehicle? And how is this energy transition happening for older vehicles over time on a grand scale? Right. And there's also a lot of issues associated with accessibility to electric vehicles. Like who are the people who are going to be able to afford them? Uh, what do we do when, uh, you know, we switch uh, gas stations and, 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 and remove gas stations and they become charging stations? So there's, you know, impacts on the economy. There's a lot of equity issues with electric vehicles in terms of making them accessible for people who need them. I am a very big fan of electrifying public transit networks, first and foremost, you know, buses, electric buses, school buses. A lot of, uh, this is very easy, right? This is very easy. This is a big win because public transit already, you know, serves a lot of passengers and electrifying it will further reduce its impact on the environment. But I'm also wondering, is there kind of a confluence between automated vehicles and EVs where the sharing economy and different forms of ownership for vehicles could help us move quicker towards this zero emission transportation sector? Unfortunately not. I don't think so. If you just think about autonomous vehicles, whether they are electric or internal combustion engines, right? There's also those two things. So there's automation and there's powertrain technology. My research group has been thinking a lot about the impact of autonomous vehicles on emissions, whether they are internal combustion engines or electric. The biggest issue with autonomous vehicles is the amount of mileage that these vehicles are going to be putting on the road. So if you're thinking about people owning autonomous vehicles, so let's say people are are giving up their cars and buying autonomous vehicles. Sure enough, you know, we've studied and and we found that if you're a household that has two vehicles, mom has a vehicle and dad has a vehicle, those two individuals could potentially relinquish their cars and buy one single autonomous vehicle who's going to drive, you know, mom to work, come back, 
potentially have time to drive dad to work, come back home, and then go pick up mom and do the same with dad and maybe pick up the kids from school. Well, you know what's happening between the time that the vehicle is, you know, dropping off mom and waiting to pick up dad. It's doing empty mileage, right? So what you're doing is this household is giving up cars, but there's a lot of mileage that the vehicle is doing being empty right? Zero occupancy vehicle. We call them, you know, ghost cars. And so what we actually found is that the amount of mileage is really going to increase. And even if we start thinking about these autonomous vehicles being shared, so multiple households sharing one single AV, because of that vehicle needing to serve multiple households and passengers, no matter how much you optimize the system, you're still getting inefficiencies. You're still getting empty mileage. The result is higher greenhouse gas emissions, in fact. So that's assuming that these vehicles are internal combustion engines. If we switch to electric vehicles, if they're autonomous and electric, which is what we think the future is going to look like, right? Automation, we think, will go hand in hand with electrification. Now you're talking about high mileage electric vehicles. You're not talking about electric vehicles that are doing, you know, 60 kilometers per trip. We're talking, or per day, we're talking about autonomous vehicles doing 200 or 250 kilometers per day, you know, like Uber vehicles or like taxis. Their charging requirements are going to be very, very different than, you know, your traditional, you go back home, you charge your car. What more is we started thinking, well, okay, there's got to be silver lining. Come on, people are giving up cars and owning less cars. Maybe the life cycle emissions. Maybe the production emissions, because you're just producing less cars, maybe that's going to offset that. We started collaborating with another group, some of our peers at UFT who do life cycle analysis. Well, what they've told us is that because these cars are doing higher mileage, they probably will deteriorate faster than your regular car. So you're still turning them around a little bit faster. So we couldn't even find a silver, a silver lining there. I don't see any value. I look at ride hailing services, right? And I know you don't want to get there. That's not your question, but I have to put it there. It's the same thing. You look at the at their impact on emissions, on air quality, on congestion. I just don't see the positive in that. We know that traffic emissions are a big contributor to the increases in greenhouse gas, air pollution, climate change, all the issues that we're facing right now, including just public health. But we also know that transportation is heavily integrated into society and to our infrastructure. And, and so clearly we need a change. Vehicles aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Driving is going to continue. How do we mitigate these impacts from transportation? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really big question. Uh, yes, vehicles, passenger vehicles are not going to go away anytime soon as we know them. Well, there's various ways in which we can mitigate traffic emissions. There's technology, but technology will not save us. And, and maybe later on, we'll get talking about, you know, different technologies, about electric vehicles. But technology is not the answer to everything, right? We absolutely have to rethink transportation, rethink mobility outside of the traditional passenger vehicle, that SUV that is carrying a single person to their workplace, because well, that we know is, is absolutely contributing to emissions of air pollutants and greenhouse gases. So 
I think in order to mitigate emissions, you have to do both. We need technology, we need cleaner vehicles, we need electric vehicles, we need alternative fuels, we need cleaner vehicles, but we have got to drive less. Because even with all of the technological innovations that we have seen over time, and let's face it, vehicle emissions have been on the decline over time, right? We can't ignore that. There's a lot of emission regulations and air quality standards have driven those reductions significantly. But even with that, we still see epidemiological evidence linking traffic emissions, traffic with public health, traffic-related air pollution with public health impacts, even at the low levels that characterize Canadian cities today. Right? We're talking about you know, Canadian North American cities. We're not even talking about you know, cities that are rapidly motorizing. But even at these low levels, we still see evidence of air pollution-related health effects from traffic. Clearly, we need to do better. And that doing better is the onus is not just on technology to save us. I think we've learned that, you know, any new technology has trade-offs. It has to also be about travel behavior, about better planning, about better policy, about reducing the number of cars on the road, and, and then providing alternative modes of transportation. Marianne Hatsopulu is a Canada Research Chair in Transportation and Air Quality and leads the Transportation and Air Quality Research Group. She has developed regional greenhouse gas emission inventories for Toronto, Montreal, and Philadelphia, as well as evaluated the potential of travel demand and technology scenarios for emissions reductions for these jurisdictions. That completes our current episode of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to everyone who put the show together this week. Mihira Latchman, Angela Misri, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. And of course, Scotiabank for making this series possible. Look for episode number two on your favorite podcasting app. There, we'll explore transformations and innovations in the transportation sector. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.